Hello, this is Jason Gewurz, the editor and publisher of Sports Travel, and welcome to another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we talk with leaders in the sports event industry about the issues of the moment affecting sports organizations and the destinations and venues that host their events. Today, we'll be talking with Lisa Baird, the commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League, which recently completed its Challenge Cup tournament in Utah with the Houston Dash emerging as the champion. But before we begin, this podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 20 will be held October 19th to the 22nd, 2020, and this year's conference will once again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee's SportsLink and NGB Best Practices Seminars, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything we have planned at Teams, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the conversation. Lisa Baird already had a long career in the sports industry before joining the NWSL earlier this year as commissioner. Prior to joining the league, she had spent several years as chief marketing officer for New York Public Radio. But for the decade before that, she served as chief marketing officer for the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, where she secured broadcast, sponsorship, and licensing deals and launched what has become known as the Team USA brand. Before her Olympic tenure, Baird also spent time as senior vice president of marketing and licensing for the National Football League, and she played a similar role as well for IBM. Her career has also included stops at some of the largest companies in the country, including Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, and General Motors, to name a few. All of that experience ended up coming into play for Baird, who took over as commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League on March 10th. And if you stop to think about that date for a moment, you'll realize that she took the helm of the nine-team league at quite possibly the worst time anyone would want to take over a professional sports league. Because just two days into her tenure, Baird had to call a halt to the entire 2020 season. Uh, The next few weeks were spent doing what pretty much every professional sports league has had to do, which is figure out how players could possibly return a competition in the midst of a global pandemic. And for the NWSL, the solution lied in Utah, which is home to one of the league's teams. A month-long tournament concept was established with games played entirely in the Salt Lake City area. And by playing their first games in late June, the NWSL became the first professional league to start its season up since sports began to shut down. The tournament came to a conclusion on July 26th, uh, a match that received the highest television rating in league history. And although the entire Orlando team was kept home before the competition began when several players tested positive, there were no positive tests the rest of the way over the month-long event. Uh, In this conversation, we'll talk with Baird about how the league settled on its tournament format, what the experience was like, and what the future holds for the league, which is about to expand to Louisville, Kentucky in 2021 and then into Los Angeles after that with what will be the league's 11th team. We also talk a bit about the Olympics and the importance of Tokyo being able to stage the games next summer. So without further delay, we hope you enjoy the conversation. Lisa Baird, welcome to the Sports Travel Podcast. Thank you very much, Jason. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's great to connect with you. For starters, just congratulations on having recently completed the NWSL Challenge Cup. This was a a, a tournament in uh, unbelievable circumstances that I'm sure you wouldn't have drawn up necessarily uh, when you took over as commissioner, but you were able to pull it off. So, you know, for starters, congratulations on doing something that uh, a lot of organizations have been uh, struggling and trying to find uh, ways uh, to do. You actually did a, a sequence of live events and appear to do it successfully. 
I'll accept your congratulations, but I accept it on behalf of over 230 players, uh, probably 100 staff members from the teams, not, uh, not 10 owners, um, really nine owners, and my amazing 16-person staff who actually made it happen. So um, there are a lot of people involved in the success. Yeah, no, no question. Obviously, something like that doesn't get done, uh, certainly by any one person. But let me start here, Lisa, because I want to talk about how you did what you did, because I think there's going to be a lot of interest in the details on it. This was a, a tournament with uh, most of your teams that took place in Utah. So let me start there on how you settled on you know the greater Salt Lake area to do your events. We're seeing, of course, uh, Orlando and some of these other cities that are hosting um, your colleagues in professional sports. But NWSL was the first league to get back on its feet, and, and you did it in Utah. So why don't we start there on, on how you guys arrived at that location? Well, the first thing we did is, you know, when we shut down the season on March 12th, we just started to kind of look around for a playbook. What would it take to really pull off a successful tournament? And we looked at a lot of alternatives. And in the process of doing that, you kind of looked at the alternatives for what we could do safely and and with health, what the tournament format would be, and therefore what facilities would we need and then where we would do it. And probably about eight weeks later, it all came together with, we went, when we would talk to four host cities, but the bid that was sent out by Utah Royals foot club owner, Deloy Hansen really stood out. And it wasn't only because he had the facilities and he could pull off the tournament. But at the time when we were looking at it, we were looking at the science of where COVID was escalating and we kind of determined that because the fall was so uncertain, we wanted to be sooner rather than later. And at the time, right. Utah was averaging 4.4 coronavirus cases per 100,000. And it really was one of the best states in the country when it came to keeping you know, the virus under control. We had a lot of meetings with the Utah governor, with um, local state and health officials. And the other key component of that was, could we pull off a tournament with our footprint and not take any resources away from any local Utahns? That was a very important principle to the governor and and ourselves. So I would say data and science really drove us, but obviously that had to combine with, you know, the facilities and the staff that was, you know, able to pull off a bubble style event. Right. And you played most of your games at Zions Bank Stadium, which is in Harriman uh, in the Salt Lake area. But remind me, Lisa, your your finals were at Rio Tinto Stadium in in Sandy, where you used both, both venues? So we used both venues and, um, you know, frankly, we wanted Harriman because we knew that early on with the group play, you'd have some settling in and it just is, it had training fields there. It had, you know, the right size stadium. We were, we were there, but when we got to the quarter fight, when we got to and into the semis, we really decided to take advantage of everything that Rio Tinto, which is an amazing stadium, had to offer. And, you know, location, the facilities in terms of ease for the team, locker rooms. And, you know, a lot of what drove it was our ability to kind of expand our, our coverage because we knew the finals would be on CBS Network. Right. Were there any unique challenges in, in switching to that other venue for the for the finals after kind of being settled? No. And I think it was because we, we early on, Utah Royals practiced there. So they, they kept their practice there the whole time. And mm. we when we when we did the specs, we initially did it. And 
so people were very happy to be on the grass at Tinto. It was, it was, a, it was like the perfect location. And it was almost like emotionally, it was great to go to a new location for those teens and the semis. Um, you know, it was like, okay, here it is. Like there's an emotional reaction. Wow. We're here. We went from, it was 4,000 seats to 20,000. The cameras were laid out perfectly. So, right. and I was really proud of the production and the way it showed on TV. A lot of people are experimenting with what does it take to show a fanless stadium on TV. And, you know, I think there's a lot of creative work being done out there. Lisa, let me take you back to the beginning of the tournament. You had a team in Orlando that uh, did not make the trip to Utah after you had some positive tests there. Talk to me about your level of concern at that point. You were just getting started and you had to send a team home. Obviously, everything eventually worked out great for the for the teams that arrived. But at that moment in time, were you uh, at all concerned about whether you'd be able to pull the rest of the tournament off? Well, I don't. I don't think I was as concerned about pulling the rest of the tournament off as I was about making the right decision for the pride players and the pride ownership. I mean, think I, I just immediately think about it from their perspective, which is here's here are players that have come back in a pandemic. We were, you know, we really laid out what we thought were the best, most conservative medical protocols, but everybody, no one had done it before. So we, they came into preseason, they were practicing, you know, and then all of a sudden at the last minute, be right before they're going. I mean, a week, less than a week away from their first game, we get this really, really disheartening news. And at the time, we didn't have the timeline to go through our positive tracing protocol and get them to Utah in time for that first game. So mm-hmm. it was really, you know, first think about what the players were going through, what the, you know, the team management had to do. Then it was you know, be on board and have all the owners make a decision. We had to change the schedule around and people don't think about that, but changing a schedule in 24 hours is really hard. You know, we had yeah. to slot people in, bring people in early, you know, that was when we did it in 24 hours. So it was more getting the the moment of how do we continue on, but I didn't have a doubt we could do it, but I knew my team and was under pressure and, and I was really concerned about the pride players. Yeah. And Lisa, how did you approach your league's sort of bubble concept? You obviously had everyone in the same, you know, metropolitan area. What kind of uh, restrictions or rules did you put on the players? Where where were they staying and and were there any limits on on what they could do when they weren't playing? Well, you know, so we had a bubble probably isn't the right term. We called it the protected environment. And I mean, mm-hmm. that's not something that plays well in, in, in newspapers. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't roll off the tongue as easily. Right? It doesn't roll off the tongue, but but it's important to be clear about that. So what we what we knew, we, we really wrote down the medical protocols and then we shared them transparently. They're on our website. We had a five-phase return to play. We're now in the process of kind of writing that fifth phase for our future. And the protocols that we laid in place were obviously the testing, number one, but then each player had to be its own unit, which meant it had to stay in its own unit. It couldn't really, you know, we couldn't mix team with team. They had to have a really strict schedule. So, for example, we had all of our catering internal, the the Real Salt Lake helped us get the, they were feeding 400, they were doing, you know, 400 meals, 400 breakfasts, lunch, dinners every day. But each team had a 15 minute, that's how you could go through the line. So yeah, it was so, it was really strict at the beginning and, and we kept that up. And I think that was why we finished virus free is we had, we knew we had four weeks. We knew we had to keep, get people in the mode of living these protocols. 
because keeping people protected within their unit was really important. And they did it. You know, we all did it. You know, we ended up with no positive tests. And and that, to me, was the goal. Yeah, I I think it's remarkable, especially now as we're seeing some of the other pro leagues uh, come back and just watching, you know, the the fits and starts, unfortunately, that that some of the teams and some of the leagues are are seeing. I'm curious, Lisa, since the world of professional sports commissioners in the United States is is pretty small, do you get any questions or comments from the from the other commissioners and some of the leagues as we're talking now, uh, the NHL, the NBA are just starting up their seasons again? Uh, are any of those uh, fellow commissioners reaching out to you to talk about how you did what you did? You know, immediately when this all transpired and we didn't know what we're doing, I reached out to everybody and I was lucky to be in the Olympic world and I made a lot of relationships. First of all, I worked at the NFL, but I worked with the NHL, the NBA, U.S. soccer. So I was reaching out to everybody to say, help, we're a small <laughs> team, I'm grand, and everybody was exceedingly generous. Obviously, we leaned a lot on um, MLS and U.S. soccer because it was we have we share owners. You know the sports the same. It's a contact sport, so people doing th- like NASCAR. See Phelps, he's a, he's a different thing. You know, they're yeah. it's just different. So, well, everybody was very generous. We immediately kind of went in, and Don Garber has been really helpful to me and very generous with his time, not only because he was sharing, you know, his staff and staff resources and there are people on his team that are just helpful to us, but I think he's been really generous with his time as kind of an advisor because you got to remember, I'm still a, um, a 16, 17 week rookie. <laughs> commissioner. So I was doing all this and then getting up to speed with being a commissioner. And, and as I've said before, and I say it tongue in cheek, but I just want you to realize that I really don't think that Adam Silver or Roger Goodell or Gary Bettman or even Don Garber need any advice from a 17-week commission. <laughs> I think they're, they're pretty good, but they, would, they really helped me. Well, I don't know. I think they could they could uh, take something away from what you did. One of the the many accomplishments in the tournament were your ratings, uh, Lisa. You had you know the, your opening game and your and your closing match, uh, the highest rated games in league history. So let's talk a little yeah. bit uh, about that. You must have been pleased with the numbers, at least that you were seeing people tuning in. I am. I'm really really happy with our numbers and. You know, I don't want to say I told you so, but I think anybody who knows the appeal of these players kind of said, hey, wait a minute, why aren't we having the numbers we are? And the key is the right partner. And CBS and Twitch are the right partner. We had international distribution. And that's a new, a relatively new deal. Yeah, it was signed right as I started. And a lot of people, including owners, helped get that deal in place. But they are the right partner. They're betting down on, on soccer now, you know, big time. And I think we all believe the audience was there. But to actually see the numbers was really great. And, and we were pleased with our performance. And I think it's more now about getting people to stay involved and engaged with us as we look at what's next and certainly as we hope to get to more of a normal season in 21, although I'm not ready to say it will be a normal season. Right. Well, I mean, obviously you wouldn't have drawn up, uh, you know, the last few weeks, uh, the way that it, that it played out when you first took over as commissioner, but in this, in kind of a weird way, Lisa, can you see a benefit here in that, you know, you had so much pent up demand for people to want to watch sports. You obviously have a great product, your ratings, uh, you know, reflected all of that, uh, in a way I would think you can at least take that momentum to whatever the next thing looks like, uh, that you're able to put together for 
competitive play. You obviously, you know, you have an audience there, uh, arguably, you know, possibly an even bigger one, uh, just because you were the first group out there really getting back to play. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, as I said, we didn't, I've said this, we didn't intend to be first, but we ended up being first. So we definitely try to take advantage of that. And I think, you know, me getting out there and telling our story and CBS doing an incredible job promoting it and betting on, you know, we bet on TV and, you know, people can talk about TV, but TV still delivers an incredible audience. And I think mm-hmm. we proved it again. So, you know, we kind of knew we had the components of it. And I think, you know, if there's one thing that I helped influence, it's was the choice of an Olympic style tournament, because I think that I knew that that was going to be the best way to get into and develop interest among casual fans, not just our avid fans. So we, as every league, we have to grow our fan base. So going from, you know, a really avid, really engaged soccer fan into a broader audience is the growth. That's the growth objective. And I think I've talked to even other, other journalists who have covered us for years and want women's professional soccer to succeed, they were saying, oh my God, I can't believe how much my audience is growing because everybody was gravitating to learn from journalists about what the sport was about, who the players were to watch, et cetera. At the end of the day, I'll give all the credit to where credit is due, which is the exciting play that happened on the pitch, period. Like, let's say, Mm -hmm. like if you put an incredible product on the field, which we have, you know, globally, people are going to watch and get engaged. So my job was arguably the easiest, make sure people know we're there. And, you know, the 230 plus players we had with stars from all over the world did the hard work, they like engage it. And, you know, frankly, we couldn't have written the script better. I mean, it was a fight to the finish. I mean, it was exciting spot soccer, with highs, highs and lows and dramas. And I think, you know, I think when people really started to get engaged was when Portland, Portland and North Carolina have this rivalry that's been back and forth over the years at North Carolina. They are a dominant team with incredible coach and incredible players. And when Portland beat them in that mm-hmm. first quarterfinals, I mean, like the, the world lit up. It was <laughs> this is anybody's tournament. And I think that's what you want to see and world-class sport is it's anybody's tournament to win and it's anybody's tournament to lose. You touched a, a little bit earlier on what next season could possibly look like, but let's talk about the rest of this year. I know there's been some talk of at least the hope of possibly having these teams still play this year in their home markets. Is there any plan you know, to have more events still in 2020? Is it possible? Well, we're working on it um, right now. Um, we really are. And again, it's going to be driven by, you know, medical health and safety of protocols. We definitely let the players have a welcome break. I mean, some of them, you know, are, you know, I'm hearing from some of them, like what's next, which is nice, but I think it's all going to be driven. And and this goes to the collaborative partnership we had from our PA from day one, which is we've got to keep the health and safety of the players uppermost. And that not only means having the right um, protocols for a bubble tournament, but the protocols for, training, scheduling, and whatever the return is to normalcy when you're outside the bubble. And that's the part of the work that we need to get get done. And it is difficult and hard, but I think right now we have a little bit more confidence because what we did worked. 
Well, uh, looking ahead to 21 and whatever form uh, your season takes, and hopefully it's a, a full normal season like we're accustomed to, you will be expanding as part of a couple teams that are coming on board here. So Louisville, Kentucky uh, gets a team next year, and you just announced a, a further expansion after that into Los Angeles. So uh, talk to me a bit, Lisa, about those two markets. Uh, Louisville's got a, a new stadium and a, a you know great soccer community, great sports town. Uh, what are your thoughts about going into Louisville as a market? I'm excited, and I think the 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 fans in Louisville are excited. If you look at their early ticket sales, I mean, they're beating their goals with their ticket sales right now for next yeah. season. So that is a harbinger of good things to come. And I think the thing that you know, I wish I had a better, more poetic or articulate way to see this. I think the traditional view has been, oh my gosh, you you need this large market to deliver, you know, large audiences and large fans and you need to have big stadiums. But what we're doing is we're going to really highly engaged, avid, strong markets. They can be large or small. And I think the fact that, you know, we have Louisville expanding as an exact market. I mean, one of our most successful markets is Portland. Um, and we have other um, smaller markets that are are equally as North Carolina being one of them. But what we want is that avid, engaged, sustainable franchise. And Louisville looks like they are already hitting all the right marks. The key for us as a league is keep the player the player pool strong, make sure that the coaching staff is strong, keep upping the standard of play in the league. And for me, that means attracting uh, more international players. Um, we're really pleased that um, U.S. soccer allocates the U.S. women's national to us. They're the win- winningest, you know, they're the winningest team in the world, but they're not the only team. And there's a lot of great players. And it was really cool to see America say, oh, wait a minute. What about Dabinia? What about, you know, Rachel Daly? Like, you know, mm-hmm. I think I was I think I was most excited when the BBC called us two days and said, hey, can we get into your post press conference? And I'm like, heck yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you can. Heck yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we want to be the best soccer league in the world with the best players. That's our goal. Yeah. Well, you're also, as I mentioned, going into a pretty big market as well. You just announced uh, the expansion plans into Los Angeles with an investor group that is like a who's who of entertainment and professional sports. Uh, just to name a few, Natalie Portman, Serena Williams, uh, not to mention Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm involved in uh, you know some of the in- investment group on that plan. Los Angeles has to be an exciting proposition for you as well for the league. And I think that, that what you're starting to see, and, and this was why Julie Ehrman is the kind of the lead executive, and she's the one that I deal with most closely, but with Kara, Julie, Alexis Ohanian, who's the founder of Reddit, and um, Natalie, is th- they really understand how to build engaged communities. And I think the reception to that announcement was not just the star power, but it went to how do you really activate and catalyze it Um digitally and you know they have they already have 60,000 followers and I don't think again it's it's because it's just a large market it's mm-hmm. LA of course but it's more about really exciting in an exciting measure getting those fans engaged and following us yeah. What's the ultimate goal, Lisa? Do you have a number? I mean, uh, LA will be 11 teams uh, for the league. How many yeah. markets do you envision being in? With that's to be determined. Um, mm-hmm. I, but my, definitely my phone is really ringing off the hook and I'm really excited about it. And it, it's like you kind of 
take a step back and you go, okay, you're in the middle of an uncertain time in the global economy. But there have been a number of articles written now about how sports teams and sports franchises are weathering this storm really well. And you just have to look at look at esports. They yeah. continue to sign on and, and develop franchises in a really interesting way. You know, you look at the valuations of some of the more established and mature leagues, but certainly if you can, um, if you can measure my phone ringing, I think there's a lot of women, there's a lot of markets and a lot of investors and ownership interested in a, in a women's soccer league. And I think are fundamentally different. One is the fact that we want to go to the right markets. We want to expand thoughtfully, but we want to have the right ownership. And we are certainly a league that's going to be open to innovation, innovative investor groups. Yeah. Um, in the f- few minutes we have uh, left here, Lisa, I want you to put on your Olympics cap, I guess, for for a minute here. Obviously, the World Cup comes around once every four years. And last year, with the dominance of the U.S. team, there was so much momentum coming in and coming into your season before the pandemic hit, of course. But uh, as you know, the Olympics uh, have been pushed off a year, assuming they take place next summer. That's uh, just another potential opportunity for exposure to the sport. Uh, from your perspective, uh, wearing your commissioner hat uh, also, Lisa, how important is it for those games to to take place next year uh, for just for that showcase? Well, I think every like the four billion people around the world are really hoping that the the games take place in Tokyo. Um, so it, the the Olympics is just a unique phenomenon, and I spent you know, a decade in it. And it's very hard to describe it. It operates in a way that's very fundamentally different from regular sports. And I think it's, it represents this coming together of the world. And I know that that sounds kind of pure of motive, but it's true. Um, so I think for a lot of reasons, as they look to re-engage and do this next year, it, now more than ever, you need an Olympics to bring the world together. Um, and, you know, I had the chance to work early on with the Tokyo Organizing Committee, and there's some really, really powerful minds there and solution creators. And, you know, I'm very hopeful that they'll come up with the solutions necessary to do it and safeguard the health and safety of, you know, what is it, 13,000 athletes, 10,000 plus athletes, 20,000 plus journalists and the enormity of fans, however, whatever composition is. Um, What I do know is that if they can pull it off, you know, the world will come together to support it. They will. Putting on your old uh, sponsorship hat, does it just make your head hurt sometimes thinking about what what that must be like right now with the uh, postponement of a year and and what that does to all those deals out and about both internationally and and nationally? It's such an unusual experience that everyone's having right now. It is. Um, and I, I don't have any inside information, you know, kind of like you get into a, a world like this and everybody puts their head down and goes, okay, I got to solve my own problems and they're just all consuming. But, you know, I think I just, you know, I just read that our partner Proctor, you know, renewed with them through 28. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of faith in the IOC and U.S. Olympic and Paralympic properties led by Kesey Wasserman and Kathy Carter that they'll figure it out. And it's, you know, you got to remember the Olympics above anybody else has the longest term view of anybody I know. So they look at this as long term. Their partners look at it as long term. So they'll figure out the short term twists in the road. But uh, I think we're all hoping for an Olympics next year. Yeah. Well, let me close on this, Lisa. I know there are always going to be challenges when you're the commissioner of a sport and you certainly didn't sign up to uh, join at the time of a pandemic, but how has the experience been overall for you making 
that shift uh, to this role of, of commissioner of a professional league? I mean, what the, what has it been like for you? I, it, you know, I don't, I think honestly, I'm just going to take some time and process it. It has just been a crisis. I started on March 10th and I shut the league down on March 12th. So I don't have any words yet. I felt in the first three to four weeks, I was operating in a fog. That's all I could say. It was like search for the best information. And I relied, I relied less on my sports experience than I did on my experience at IBM. Cause you know, the technology world is always shifting, always fast. You always have to find new things. So I went yeah. back to that and, you know, mapped out, you know, here's this work stream. Here's that. It was very process oriented. So those were skills that I used early on. And then when you get in the tournament, it literally is executing day to day. And I found my Olympic experience in particular, having been in a games, which is kind mm-hmm. of like a protected environment. You know, and I think my quote the other day, you know, there's this old adage, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Well, I think right now, as everybody's going through these bubbles, it's a marathon and a sprint. <laughs> um, because watching the players play every three to four days as we went through this, you know, group play and tournament, they were they were playing their hearts out. Like it was exciting, intense soccer, every game. So um, that was that. Now I've got the chance now to kind of, I don't want to say contemplate, but while we're figuring out what's right for the rest of this season, you know, hopefully I'll have a little bit of time to really architect, you know, kind of a a strategic roadmap. That's what I promised my owners. And and I really want to get to that work because I do think we need a strategic roadmap for the future. Yeah. Well, the good news is if you can make it through uh, what you've just made it through the last couple of weeks, imagine what you'll be able to do when things get back to normal, uh, which hopefully will be relatively soon here for, for all of us. I, ho- I hope so. I, ho- I, we, I think we're all hoping for normal right now. We're, we're all hoping that these health companies, governments, pharmaceutical companies, whoever it is, um, can help us with this. But everybody should just figure out a way to stay safe in this, this environment. And, you know, that's, that's what we've got to do. Just stay safe. All right. Well, a uh, great way to end it. Uh, again, Lisa, congratulations on everything you and the league were able to pull off. Uh, excited to see where you'll be uh, from here and in what markets you'll be at in the years to come. And uh, would love to stay in touch as you uh, proceed down that road. So uh, congrats again on everything, Lisa. All right. Thanks so much, Jason. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which also features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at Sports Travel on Twitter and Instagram, and at Sports Travel Magazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Jason Gowards for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.